Magalhaes to Stokes, who's onside. Wagner. Here's Sims. It's a good serve this from Southampton. They could finish the job here. It's Shane Long, and he has done it. Just a minute to play. A stoppage time. Here's Letizia. Welcome. Uh, you're listening to episode 101 of the Saints FC podcast. And tonight I have with me old friend of the podcast and an old friend of Southampton turned foe this past weekend um, <laughs> in Carl Anker. Carl, welcome back to the podcast. We, we've been missing you. Call me old twice there. I'm not even 30 yet. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. Neither Tom and I can talk, so... You're all right. You're the youngest man on the podcast this week, although um, we had a, 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 an up-and-coming oh, God, yeah. journalistic superstar who was celebrating his 20th birthday with us last week, Carl. So wow. There we go. 20. Yeah. Do you remember those days? Barely. I, I was I was very drunk during my 20s. Early 20s, I should say. Yeah. But, wow, 20. That means your first World Cup that you remember is South Africa, 2010. Yeah, that's, that's, that's probably true, isn't it? Um, we it, also, I mean, we were talking about Theo Walcott, and he there's probably hardly any chance that he remembers the early Theo Walcott at Southampton as well. So, you know, the, the, there's a lot there's a lot for him. Anyway, we in in terms of kind of um, journalistic reporting. So, Carl, obviously, you were covering um, Southampton for the Athletic um, last season. You got your big money transfer um, to head up north and, and go and join one of the big clubs, Manchester United. Obviously, you left Southampton to win trophies um, and you've already done that. So, congratulations. I should have introduced you as award-winning journalist Carl Anker uh, because you're now on the 2020 football blacklist, which I think is a, a rather good achievement, Carl. So, so well done on that. Thank you. Thank and, you very much. And to top it off, you've also you're 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 gonna be writing a children's book, is that right? With pretty much the most liked man in the whole of Great Britain at the moment, with Marcus Rashford. How on earth has that come about, Carl? And, and this, this is your opportunity to give it a plug for our listeners. <laughs> um yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna be working a book working on a children's book with Marcus Rashford. It's called You Are a Champion. It's gonna be released in may 2021 um i've got to write a children's book with marcus rashford that's really interesting isn't it uh, unfortunately i can't really share too many details but i'm really excited to to bring this project and hopefully create something that will be of great use for children up and down the country and you know, perhaps even more and, and have you ever written for children before carl or is this going to be a first foray into that year I have edited and worked on some children's magazines when uh, another life and another journalism career. So I've worked on a couple of children's magazines when I was a bit younger. But this will be the largest amount of work I'll do yeah, writing in children's publishing to date. And uh, yeah, anytime I'm not doing athletic work or, or watching football, I am now very much reading as many children's books as possible, trying to learn as much about children's publishing as possible and trying to work and create something that not only is in the style and voice and, and works quite well with Marcus's wants and needs and, and when we're 
fill that partnership going forward, but also can be really useful to children across the United Kingdom. Okay, so so Carl, you had a, an opportunity to come back um, and watch Southampton again in the flesh. I, I'm presuming you did come back to Southampton because you told me a story about you losing your laptop charger. Um, and leaving that in Southampton. So if, you know, someone's listening from St. Mary's, if they've picked that up, uh, if you could post it back to Carl, that would be great. And Carl, I, I asked you a question. So, I mean, we know that you're a Man United fan, but I think you probably developed a bit of a love for Southampton in the time that, that you were with us. So, you know, you probably have some warm feelings to Southampton and you may have had some warm feelings towards your laptop charger. So, I mean... <laughs> If you had the choice, what would you have rather have gone home with last night? Would it have been the three points for Manchester United or the laptop charger? Which is more important to you? Oh, uh, so so you're offering me right now Manchester United with a victory, and I don't get my laptop charger, or you're offering me the, I'm assuming the draw. Yeah, I think but the draw I, is probably laptop, fair. Um, um, I might keep. I might, I might, I might choose to keep my laptop charger. Wow. Not only because I would have had extra, you know, I would have been able to keep my 400 word introduction that I hastily had to rewrite because <laughs> I just, I just, it was, it was a cracking game, wasn't it? I've been watching Southampton quite a lot this season, so um, obviously with the majority of the games being televised near constantly, apart from that pay per view section, I'm trying to not watch too much football in case I get burnout so I'm, I'm roughly working on a two game a week or two Premier League games a week sort of curb and that, that t- tends to be one of them is the Manchester United game I'm covering another one now very often is the Southampton game so uh, even though we're at the 10 point 10 game point in Premier League there are some Premier League teams I just haven't watched 90 minutes of yet because I'm still watching Southampton play football uh, I think one of the big learners I'm getting when I'm watching Southampton play is bloody hell they've improved haven't they yeah, they, they they have got better since you left, Carl. I mean, that is the <laughs> that that is the thing, and uh, you know, we're we're not sure yet whether it's because you're not revealing Saints tactics so kind of overtly in the Athletic anymore. Um, we, I did have an email from one of our listeners actually. So um, Gary uh, Seward has has written in, and he's talking uh, about you know really enjoying the podcast, particularly the um, recent Saints uh, Ultimate Saints Eleven episodes, um, which we have Mick Channon on on our most recent episode choosing his favorite ever, ever saints 11 but one of the things that he picked up and wanted me to ask you about carl um was the was the bromance in the pre-game press conference he he thought it was hilarious and um <laughs> you know that i i think i think ralph is missing you carl i mean have you been missing him because it was picked up in the press conference that there's a there's a bit of you know a forlorn loving look in the eyes of you two um well first of all thank you to southampton football club for letting me Going to that press conference, uh, I think one of the interesting things about these COVID times and Zoom press conferences is, well, for one, if you're a student or, or anyone wanting to get into journalism, now's a really good time to just listen and watch all the press conferences because a lot of them are on YouTube now. So if you want to know how journalists ask questions, I'd recommend you'll do that. Um, and, and thank you to, to the press team uh, at Southampton because... I'm still on their email chain. They haven't taken me off yet, so I still get invites to all the press conferences. <laughs> uh, I still get invites to all the press conferences, and the one came up from Manchester United, and I sent them a little email going, hey, do you mind if I just duck in quickly to get one about Manchester United? And not only did they allow me to do that, but unlike what used to happen when I was at 
covering Southampton for the Athletics. So what tended to happen was I used to be the final person to ask questions when I was covering Southampton, whereas this time, at least in the in the written journalism section, they allowed me to ask the first question. So uh, that's why you got that little moment there where uh, I was introduced quite nicely and Ralph Hassan-Hall was going, who? I was like, hey, it's me. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've listened to quite a few press conferences as well and I think Ralph's little response of, oh, why are you bringing no stats? How? Because that, that, was, that was very much what we did last season. It would be, you know, for, for certain reasons, people come into the press conferences and tend to ask questions along the lines of the 9-0 or the reaction to the 9-0. And then they'd ask questions about Danny Ings and Danny Ings' form. And then they get to me and I, you know, come up with my big old truck of stats and go, so Ralph, what's up with the back post defending? Or what's up with this interpretation of uh, Hoiberg and the number six role? Or why do you call your wide players number 10s when they're actually they're wide players? Uh, and Ralph has always been a very obliging manager when you talk about tactics and you talk about that sort of stuff. I think was really interesting towards the end of last season as well was he was beginning to correct me quite often, which I thought was quite fun. Uh, there'd be times I'm going, it looked as if you did this for your team shape. I go, no, I did this, which I always like, oh, okay, well, we, we now have a dialogue. So I, I do miss that sort of robust conversation just a little bit. And have you managed to build up that sort of relationship with uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer yet? Or is, is that, you still working on that one, Carl? I'm still working on that one. We had a fun interaction on Tuesday where... I asked him what his long-term vision for the team was. And he sort of had a mo- He sort of like laughed for a little bit. And he goes, uh, we're going to need the minute because that's a big question. I don't want to answer it right now. And then he gave me a very, very good answer, which was quite nice. And I've written that piece now on the athletic that went out on Saturday. Um, so, you know, hopefully backing myself and hopefully by a couple more weeks, a couple more months, I'll have a relationship similar with, with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Obviously, one of the big things about covering Manchester United compared to covering Southampton was Southampton, you've got a very, very nice collection of maybe six or seven people, including yourself, whereas on Manchester United, it can be 20 to 30 people all trying to ask questions at the same time. Sometimes people are asking questions in different languages. So, for example, on just before their Champions League game on Tuesday, a very nice Norwegian journalist came on and asked Ole a question in Norwegian. To which Ollie translated back to everyone, which is quite fun. So uh, it's it's a it's a different environment, shall we say? Yeah, I was actually going to one of the questions I wanted to ask you about. Now you're following a team that has uh, uh, fixtures overseas. Do you, as a journalist, do you have to now watch that on you know, like the telly, like the rest of us, or do you get a chance to travel with Man United? So since Project Restart, so since 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 August and whatnot. We so quite a few. It it tends to be dependent on football clubs. So some football clubs in these COVID times only really want to give one press pass. Some football clubs give two. It's a, it's very much at the discretion of some football clubs. Um, so for example, Newcastle United did not give a pass to myself as the Manchester United journalist because they didn't want to have they didn't want to increase COVID risk from having twenty four journalists when they could have twelve you know, people from Newcastle which was interesting, whereas Southampton were kind enough to give me one as the away manager, so I managed to make the trip there. So 
the first point of contact is always whether or not the club will let will allow you as press accreditation, and the second one is whether or not you want to make that trip. So these Champions League away games, it does come up to the question as to whether or not you want to quarantine for ten days afterwards. Mm-hmm. So some journalists are are doing one or two, three big games, Champions League games, and then quarantining, and then other ones are not. So at the Athletic right now, we currently have. Andy Mitten, a fantastic Manchester United journalist. He's the editor of United We Stand. He's a contributing writer. And he is based in Barcelona. Uh, and due to slightly different COVID restrictions, when he is constantly on the move, he can travel up and down Europe. So he can do PSG, then he can cover Rassenball Sport Leipzig, and then he can go off and cover Istanbul Bashekshire. So he, he was sort of a, a roaming Manchester United reporter for, for two or three weeks. Whereas some of us uh, other outlets are going to cover one game in Europe and then coming home and then staying at home for 10 days. So it's, it's at everyone's discretion. I have not done a European away game yet because I would not like to quarantine for 10 days yet. Yeah, Tom and I have been uh, planning our European uh, trip next <laughs> season. And, uh, at this point, I'd take a 10-day quarantine to go and watch uh, you know, Saints versus... Hertha of Berlin or, you know, Milan or, you know, one of those big European nights would, would be great to get again. And, you know, potentially we're heading that way, slightly upset by Manchester United and our uh, penchant for still giving away leads and dropping points from uh, winning situations. Let's, let's get into the Saints-Man United game because... Um, that's what uh, everyone's here to listen, listen to and listen to our kind of analysis of. Um, I've got to admit, for this game, I only got to see the second half live, which is oh, buddy. <laughs> you know, fairly, fairly bad form for me. So I was at the beach and I was cycling back and I was listening on, on the radio, on Radio 5 Live, and made it back in time to watch the uh, great comeback and Cavani's fantastic performance. Um, one of the things which they picked up on Radio 5 Live, and I don't know if Tom or Carl, if you saw this as well, but they um, had a couple of Manchester United fans commentating, and not particularly surprising, but they were looking at how Solskjaer had set up the Man United team, and they thought that he'd changed the formation and the setup to almost mirror what Ralph Hasenhutter was doing with Southampton, and um, in a sort of 4-2-2-2 or a sort of a 4-1-2-1-2 uh, formation. Is that the case? Because one of the things that they were quite surprised at was Manchester United now mirroring Southampton. They were saying that you know that should be considered great credit to Southampton, that a big club like Man United would go there with a specific game plan for Southampton rather than just thinking, we're Man United, we'll do what we do and we'll win. Yeah, so uh, before before the game, so the, the press conference on the Friday, I asked Ollie about Southampton, what he thought of them, and I said, how how you know Southampton are a team with a really pronounced team shape and they've got a really pronounced style, especially in midfield. And I said, how do you deal with a team that you know have a physical edge? And Solskjaer gave a really good answer. He basically gave a whole bunch of flowers to Ralph Hasenhut and went, yeah, he's a really good manager. He said, they're a team that can... I'll get the quote up for you right now. Through the magic of podcasting. He said... I need to bring in some sort of... Uh... Yeah. Dream sequence. Um, <laughs> hang on, let's see. Let's see what I've got here. Um, that, that's the searching. That for sounds like Carl's about video. to murder someone. <laughs> uh, yeah, he mentioned. You said you know he, he called Southampton a very German team with a very German style, which is always that fun. Like Ralph is Austrian, but continue. 
uh, and mentioned how in that they have a high pressing style and they can set traps. And then what was really interesting for me was he specifically brought up the goal Manchester United conceded against Southampton in the game against Old Trafford, where Pogba was dawdling on the ball and Romeo and Ward Prowse just basically nicked it off him and scored a really nice goal. And he said they need to be wise to that and be and be aware of that physicality. I thought that was a really good answer. And I was also I I said just before the game, I was quite relieved that Paul Pogba was injured and wouldn't be able to play because Paul Pogba was not a very press resistant midfielder or is not as press resistant as you would think he is uh, and the shape the, the so initially it was a 4-4-2 diamond and it did slightly tweak towards the game as the game got forward so it was Nemanja Matic at the base of the diamond Fred on the right hand side but Fred tucked in really close to sort of play ahead of Matic and then Donny van der Beek on the left and Bruno Fernandes at the tip of the spear and then the idea was to do split strikers up top and it just it was okay for the first half. So United, I'd say United mostly contained Southampton, but Southampton was so clinical with their two chances. It's, I think the first half and the, you know, I'm a man of stats and numbers and whatnot. You you might find a few Manchester United fans say, yeah, well, the XG said we should have won that game. It's fine. And I said this before, I went, the XG will tell you that James Ward-Prowse's free kick was not a high chance shot. Your eyes would go, why on earth did Fred give a free kick there? James Ward-Prowse is perhaps the best free kick taker in the league. Do not give a free kick in those areas. So, yeah, Southampton were good. They weren't their usual bright and busy self. I'd say the first 10 minutes belonged to United. The <coughs> next 20 minutes belonged to Southampton. And then the end of the second half, the end of the first half belonged to Manchester United. And then the changes came. Uh, but again... Very strange game. I'm really enjoying Southampton getting confident in possession. So whereas before, <laughs> I think I've been on this podcast talking about how Southampton would have this thing where if the chance wouldn't be on, they'd pass it back to the goalkeeper who'd kick it long so they could reset the press. Southampton don't really do that anymore, but they're just so much better recycling along their back four. And I think Yannick Vestergaard is really important for that as well. <laughs> you consider Yannick Vestergaard two or three points last season looked like he was going to be sold. I think I said... One, I, I vaguely alluded at one point I didn't think Hank Lestergaard was a Premier League quality centre-back but completely wrong and I now completely understand why Leicester City were prepared to offer £25 million for him he is a very good ball-playing centre-back which you just wouldn't expect from someone who's 6'6 six six. It's, it's something that I think has taken us all by surprise um, in Southampton this season it's, it's actually changed the dynamic of how we play um, and the ability to build from the back is, is is much better now and Southampton are more confident on the ball. I don't think Vestergaard had particularly a, a great game yesterday, certainly from the defensive perspective. Um, but, you know, uh, he, he's he's definitely improved the way Southampton are uh, on, on the ball. Um, let's kind of, uh, we'll, we'll, let's sort of, we'll enjoy the first half kind of analysis. And I'm <laughs> going to go to Tom here as the Saints fan. Um, Tom, tell us about the Bednarek goal and the James Will Prowse goal. And we, we've had this debate about the James Will Prowse XG for free kicks. It's just like whether you should just kind of quadruple whatever the XG is for James Will Prowse, <laughs> because that seems to be um, setting the free kick form that he's got at the moment. And uh, again, this is one one of the things that the Man United sporting commentators were just aghast at Fred for giving away that free kick. But Tom, tell us tell us what is a James Will Prowse? Yeah, well, I, I agree with Carl. It was a strange game of football. The first half, no, sorry, the first half was very strange um, because Saints didn't play. Actually, Saints played, I think, pretty poorly. I think 
uh, Man United were were pretty damn good. Um, and I think Man United's shape kind of flummoxed Saints a little bit. And I think we struggled to get near them. And I think the quality of players they've got, even the players that, um, you know, people think are a bit slow and ponderous. Like when I saw Fred and Matic, I thought that's great. Because, you know, one of the things Man United fans say about Fred and Matic is they take too many touches. And you think Saints pressing game, you know, those two sort of slow, sort of ponderous yeah, that's great for us. We can turn the ball over quickly. Um, but Man United were pretty good. But then all of a sudden, Saints were winning, and uh, it had a it had a weird feel about it. I mean, it didn't. It just kind of came out the came out the blue. Saints did with sort of their best to kind of concede goals, and then yeah, it was a it was quite an old fashioned goal. I don't think you see many goals like it anymore. Where um, you know, just a whipped in swinger into the near post and. Rashford, I think, is marking Bednarek, and Bednarek sort of does this sort of uh, like a Cobra-style shaking of the head, which flummoxes and baffles Rashford, and and then just nods it in, and everyone just sort of stops and looks. It was a weird goal to concede. I mean, I, I think there's an argument: is why is uh, Rashford marking, um, you know, a centre back at a corner? But it it was a weird goal, Carl. Do you do you think it was a bit strange? So I, I I remember tweeting about how Southampton had a decent well, decent amount of mesh pressure, and I said Southampton are about to have their very first corner in the game. Dot dot dot. And my exit was, and now they've scored in that terrible commentator's curse thing. Something I find interesting. Well, Manchester United and their corner defending ability has always been odd, which is all, which is one big reason why Harry Maguire was purchased at such a large sum. So they've all, they've been quite weak weak at near post since I I think around Mourinho time. So I remember Mourinho mentioning how United under him defect, defended with a mixed uh, with a mixed zonal system. So you had certain individuals that would, mark, would man mark and certain individuals that would zone. Obviously, the majority of the Premier League teams defend zonal. I, I have no ill-bearing against zonal marking. And it was just, I think it was just an individual mistake. You, you put a striker to defend the near post corner and it went past. One, that speaks to how good James Ward-Prowse's corners are. Uh, and I remember after Southampton beating Aston Villa at Villa Park, I noticed that when James Ward-Prowse lifts his left arm up, that tends to mean he's going to whip it near post. So that's a thing you should look out for in future. I've just revealed that, sorry. Um, uh, and yeah, when, when you've got someone that can whip in corners with such good accuracy, it, it does be a case of, can you get your players to attack the ball? I don't know for a fact that Hassan has wanted Jan Benarek to score more goals from set pieces. That's definitely been something he's wanted more from the Polish centre-back from. I think this one just came off. It, it was interesting, though, because it was almost a carbon copy of the goal that we scored at Old Trafford. Um, you know, with a, you know, it was kind of a, you know, that into the near post. And Benarek, obviously, this time it was a score direct from his header. But you think Man United would have learned from the end of last season. You would think that, wouldn't you? Uh, I like that disdain in your in your voice there, Carl. I mean, it's interesting that, that Ralph Hasenhutl um, wants Bednarek to score more goals from uh, from set pieces, um, but maybe he won't now that we've we've seen that stat uh, being bandied around quite a lot. And um, uh, Ed Marsh kind of highlighted it to to me on Twitter. When Bednarek scores, we always end up leading two 0 and losing the game three two. 
So I say always. I mean, it's only happened three times, but that's mm-hmm. that's weird, isn't it? I mean, for that, that's not that common a scoreline. Um, and so, yeah, I, maybe we shouldn't let Bednarek score because I don't like surrendering two goals, two goal leads, and losing three two. It's, it, it's upsetting. So um, the last time it happened was the Wolves game at St Mary's, and I remember obviously in the Athletic we don't do match reports; we try and do debriefs and, and more in-depth stuff and I remember going to that game against Wolves going I'm going to write about Shane Long the plan was to write about Shane Long and why it was so important and the first goal was Jan Benderak I was like good the second goal was Shane Long and I was like happy days this is amazing uh, and, and then it went into half time and then Wolves won 3-2 and I was going oh for the love of Pete <laughs> um, I think Jan Benderak scoring might be a misnomer I think the more accurate thing to do would be to look at how soon your central midfielders get yellow carded. So in the Wolves game, James Ward-Prowse got yellow carded quite early on in the game. I think around about 20th, maybe the 30th minute. And then again, similarly in Manchester United, James Ward-Prowse picks up a booking in the first half. When Southampton's game is relying a lot on pressing and physicality, uh, and Oreo Mameo has been brutalising Manchester United midfielders now for the last three seasons and a bit, and has largely got away with bookings. I think a lot of how Southampton play relies on their central midfielders, especially being able to turn over the ball and being really, really aggressive in those central areas and and stopping the flow of games. And when you've got two central midfielders that aren't carrying bookings, that's great. When you've got one player that has a booking, that means they can't clanging to people as much as you would like. And I think that has a lot to do with these wild swings in form from half to half, because where previously Southampton might be able to calm things down by just sticking a boot in, getting a foul, and then resetting your entire defensive line. When your captain, James Ward-Prowse, is a booking, he can't do that anymore. Is my analysis. It's a theory. It's, it, Let me know what you think. It's a, it's a good theory. And actually, you know what? Um, with uh, Diego Maradona dying last week, uh, we've seen that goal kind of being replayed hundreds and hundreds of times that he scored against England, you know, that greatest goal in the world ever. And I think maybe Southampton, if James Will Prowse and Aurea Romero didn't have a yellow card, I don't know if that goal gets scored. I think he gets taken down with a tactical foul and it's a, it's a Saints take the yellow card. But yeah, with Aurea Romero and uh, James Will Prowse on yellow cards, Diego Maradona gets through. That's, that's my theory. That's what I've been thinking about this <laughs> week in terms of the, the tactical fouls. Um, John, I don't know if you have seen, also having a look for the fouls by... Um, I can't remember one of the England midfielders on Maradona during that game. He, he fouls him. Four, uh, four of the fouls I've seen would be, definitely be yellow or red cards, and he doesn't get booked once. Oh, yeah. Different game back then. He takes a very clear elbow to the face. Uh, yeah. Just keep sticking. Football, foot, you can't really compare football. I always say you shouldn't really compare footballers from different areas, and you especially shouldn't compare footballers to anything bef- playing now to anything before 1992, because it's basically a different sport. There we go. It is my theory. Premier League era and all that. Well, or the back pass era, whichever, yeah, whichever line pass. we want to draw. Um, so before we move on to the um, the dreadful second half, should we talk about James Will Prowse free kick? Because it was an absolute yes. beaut, wasn't it? Yes, let's talk about that one. So, I, yeah, I saw Fred give away the free kick and I went, oh, this is bad. And a lot of my thought, I, I think I said James Will Prowse country, which... The fact that we're saying that when James Ward-Prowse's manager is Ralph Hassan and not Ronald Koeman, 
speaks to how James Ward Prowse has been around for a lot longer than we thought and took a different person to sort out how we would play. Um, Ward Prowse had already scored against De Gea as well, so I was wondering if that was going to play into things. And yeah, it was a very similar thing. You know, corner from a free kick from that sort of area, and he, you know, up and over and into that near post. I think De Gea will probably be annoyed with himself and would have expected to save that. But Ward Prowse, it was such dip and venom that not only did De Gea only manage to get a hand to it after it would cross the line, but he also hurt himself, which is that sort of, ooh, the further anomaly. What do you think? It's, it's it, really interesting. Oh, go on, yeah, I don't know how you defend a, a James Will Prowse free kick. I mean, the wall jumped. Uh, was it Marcus Rashford lied down underneath the wall as well? So that was Fred. Hit it. Fred was did it a little Fred? slide down behind behind the wall. He like slides on the wall just in case they tried it. I mean, that is Jettle. one of those things I love to see when the free kick goes in as well, because then you think, oh, you've really thought cleverly about how to defend this, and it's it's still gone in. Um, and De Gea, I, like normally, I think when you set up your wall, you're generally quite far over to the other side of the goal because you're covering the cut the side that the attacker can see right and you leave the side which the wall is blocking a bit more exposed and De Gea actually is probably stands a little bit more century than you normally would and he still can't get to the ball because Ward Prowse hits it hard enough and into the corner enough that it just doesn't quite get to it but I don't know I think if I was a keeper I might just stand behind the wall and leave that sort of far um, side gaping and so see what much, happens. There's so much space on the far side that Ward Prowse was aimed to. This is the thing. Um, so when I, I early in the season, earlier last season, I talked to Matt Letizia about Ward Prowse's free kick technique and what you can do. And he was like, no. Like, I, I, eventually you get to a point as a free kick taker where it's less about what the keeper can do and more about just giving the free kick taker his flowers. And Ward Prowse now is so good at taking free kicks I'm not going to say I'm not going to say England are going to win the Euros because Jack Grealish is going to win free kicks and James Ward-Prowse is going to score them I'm not saying that I'm just saying it's a possibility I mean Gareth I think as well uh, go on Tom sorry so I I think when you talk about Fred Fowler and it being a silly foul it was still a ridiculous place to score a free kick from like (laughs) I, I know that you shouldn't give a free kick away in and around the box of James Ward-Prowse. Like, we all know that. And the Aston Villa ones were the really stupid ones. But, like, you know, it was at a horrible angle. And really, James Ward-Prowse had really the width of the ball in terms of amount of space to get it in, you know, to, to actually score that goal. He only has about the width of the football past the post to get it in, doesn't he? Because otherwise, De Gea's got it covered. And, yeah, it was a stupid foul. But at the same time, he's probably thinking, like, not many players would probably attempt that shot. And not many players, and even fewer, would be able to score it because it was, you know, it's a very strange angle, and and he, you know, he 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 sort of fouled him in a place where he thinks maybe that's worth, you know, maybe he'll have to cross this one. But I think this is, you know, to the point about, you know, Letizia talks about it is, what do you do now about James Ward Prowse? You know, say the way Saints players, we draw, we we will draw fouls in and around the box, won't we? With uh, you know, players like Carl Walker-Peters, Armstrong running across, Gineppo, they're going to they're gonna draw fouls. And right now, James Ward-Prowse, free kick in and around the box, he seems to score, what, about 20% of them, which is a ridiculously high ratio. I'm not, not, I think the really interesting thing isn't, isn't how many he's scoring, it's how many gets on target. So 
his on-target ratio for free kicks is one of the highest in the Premier League. Maybe up there in Premier League history. So he's not doing the knuckleball technique, the you know, the Ronaldo one. He's not just going for wild power. Such, like a bit. I mean, he's got a similar technique to James Madison, but he's just so much more accurate with it. And what I think what's really interesting is in the last year and a half, Ward-Prowse has gone from taking 40 to 50 free kicks in training sessions to now maybe taking five or six. So he's gone from this, you know, this volume shooting to just con- you know consistently repeat this technique. So he always gets on target to, to going. He knows exactly how to get the shot on target now. He knows how to contort his body to do it. And now he's going, how do I make sure this goes from being on target to being a goal? Which, I mean, that's terrifying, isn't it? He is approaching that David Beckham level of free kicks that we all thought he might. Exciting times, I think, for James Ward-Prowse fans out there and for Saints fans. Um, I'm absolutely... I feel more confident when James Ward-Prowse places the ball down on the edge of the area than I do when he places the ball down on the penalty spot, which always Ooh. makes me think maybe the way to, to defend against Southampton is to either give away more penalties or just not have a wall. Yes, you, you, you probably, you know, probably get rid of the wall. I think he uses it to measure his angles, doesn't he? And and that and that's what he practices, getting it over the wall and then back down. Right. Unfortunately, this is the point now where I rock up home on my bicycle. I finish my ride, and I'm here in time to watch Saint Seal a famous victory uh, against Manchester United. Um, but I am aware of those John the of Jonah ominous sort of stats. We've got the Bednarek goal, and we know where that leads us. Um, and here's some stats. So Saints still haven't managed to stop dropping points from winning positions. So um, I think it's now 37 points, may even be 40 points. I can't remember when I read this stat. Um, since Ralph became manager of Saints that we've dropped from winning positions. 25 points since the start of last season and eight points even this season in this relatively short season. So that's 10 games we've had so far. and We've already dropped eight points from winning uh, winning positions this season and I think Manchester United also have won the most points from coming back from behind um, I think it's either this season or since 2020 so there was a lot of writing on the wall there um, and then I suppose with what you guys are saying about the Saints performance in the first half of Man United looking better I mean I certainly wasn't impressed with the Saints performance in the second half Manchester United as far as I could see were all over us from the start we had um, a Rashford shot with a, a McCarthy save. Um, and I think, you know, Bertrand and Vestgaard had a complete nightmare with Fred, um, which led to Cavani picking out Fernandez for, for the first goal. And I just couldn't really understand what had happened because Fernandez was totally unmarked. But it was, when you watch the replay, it was quite clear that Bertrand and Vestgaard managed to remove themselves from, from the picture for this goal, which just left us so exposed. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Fred did really well to so it's a it's a quick one-two between Cavani and Fred. Fred does really well to hold on to the ball, so there's a quick roulette. Which I mean, I know this isn't the Manchester United podcast, but I will mention how Fred is getting better as a football player. So that sort of Fred takes too many touches, becoming a little bit of a misnomer, and then he plays it quite quickly off to Cavani. And I think what's really good about Cavani's crosses, Benrek is probably expecting the cross to be played ahead of him and at head height. So Benrek's expecting a cross that you can nod away, whereas the cross comes in behind Benrek to the feet of Bruno Fernandes, and that's what makes the goal possible. 
Cavani as a striker knows the exact sort of cross a striker would need to put that away and therefore delivers it. Whereas if Juan Batakarik did the cross, it might not have been a goal. And I mean, this second yeah. half was, was, was all about Cavani, wasn't it? Because not only has he set up Fernandez there, he's scored two kind of really clever goals later on. Um, I mean, I think the, the, the shot that Fernandez fires back in for Cavani's second goal and he sort of takes a risk and runs at the ball and heads it in. He's almost anticipating it happening, which is amazing, or probably more realistic. He's anticipating McCarthy spilling it and hoping to be there, but then suddenly he's able to adjust his body and get it. Um, and, you know, then we have the numbing inevitability of the winning goal um, where Cavani makes a run where he sees the ball before anyone else gets a run on Vestergaard. Benrek doesn't know where he is. Um, and it's, it's, it's absolutely gutting. And um, my word, I, I've not watched much of Cavani, but he is a very, very wily attacker. And he's too wily for the Saints' central defence here. Yeah, sorry. I think that movement that you picked up for the second goal, so Cavani's first goal, is the... is one of the really rare things you will find from a striker, but the ability to gamble when your teammate is taking a shot on goal and move towards goal just in case someone spills it. So I broke it down frame by frame from the Athletic, and what's really interesting is as the ball is going out to Bruno Fernandes to take the shot, Cavani is already turning around towards the goal where everyone is looking at Bruno. Um, have you seen the film Lucky Number 11? It's quite fun. It's got Josh Hartnett in it and Morgan Freeman. There's a little joke yeah, in there. I've seen that. Yeah. Like assassins or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, like, yeah. it's got a little quote there going, do you know what a Kansas City shuffle is? It's the idea that when everyone's looking left, you look right or the other way around. And I think that that is what Cavani can do. He, he's done that twice now in those games where everyone is looking for the shot and he's going, oh, there's a chance here. And, and that's how he managed to steer it down. I also think the angle of what he got on the head was great because he's, you know, he's sloped his body over and he's redirecting the ball at the same time, which... I mean, I can't do that. I can describe it, but if you gave me that cross 10 times to head in, I'd maybe get on target once. So there's that. He he uh, he, he reminded me of, um, John, I don't know when you when we were at Wembley, you were watching Ibrahimovic. Yes, yes, sadly. And like, and like, it just a different, just did things slightly differently. I don't know if this is like truly world-class. I mean, I guess this is what truly world-class players do. But like Saints at Wembley just couldn't, could handle everyone. They dealt with all of the Man United players, except for Ibrahimovic, who decided that actually he was going to win that, that <laughs> league title, you know, that league cup by himself. And he did. And, I, you know, Cavani's impact was almost the same in terms of like it, it just kind of seemed to scare Saints, didn't it? He didn't really know what to do with him. Yeah, it's it, it's it's worrying, isn't it? I mean, I, I guess this is the problem. So, Saints have have been one of the great pretenders, I suppose, of the first half of or the first quarter of this season, in the fact that we've had some really impressive results. We've topped the table, you know, for over twenty four hours. Um, I think we had a chance to go up to second or third here in in this game, which was, you know, I suppose, in the live league table where we were at two 0 up. But the difference is, is that that depth isn't it and it's that ability to draw on someone who's world class from the bench I mean even as well I mean let's compare the the, the two sort of key substitutes Solskjaer brings on Cavani and he changes the game Ralf Hasenhüttl brings on Shane Long 
who I've <laughs> been a fan on fan of for many years, but I mean, Carl, you've picked this up as well. That article that you were going to write in the Saints-Wolves game about Shane Long, he's not even doing the things that Shane Long is good at doing anymore. Or, or is it something else? So from my, and I will say outside of you, because unfortunately I don't get to watch Southampton with the granular detail that I used to, but from my slightly outside of you now, um, Shane Long's main expertise last season for Southampton was his ability in the air. So despite the fact he's five foot ten, he is really good at jumping. And that sounds really, really simple, but he was really important to get flick-ons and winning headers and help progress the ball up the pitch. And a key part of Southampton, like I said earlier, was if the press wasn't working, they'd pass it all the way back to the goalkeeper and the goalkeeper would kick it long. Pun intended. Uh, and then Shane Long would get the flick on and that would allow the ball for one of Danny Ings or Nathan Redmond and or Musa sometimes Buffal to run onto and to you know help some get up the pitch that was a key part of how something played and it was very much Shane Long was doing the dirty work so Danny Ings didn't have to occupy himself and if you go through a lot of the quotes at the time Danny Ings was talking about how much he liked Shane Long because Shane Long was beginning to work the channels and was beginning to do the stuff dropping deep and then Danny Ings would just do Danny Ings things which is score goals and look delightful as Southampton we have all know evolved, that Danny Ings is a far more complex piece than that, Carl. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> um, but as I think as Southampton's style has evolved, and as they've become this team that's way more confident in possession, the uses of Shane Long has gone away a bit. So Southampton aren't kicking it long anymore when they need to reset the press. When they really need to reset the press, it goes back to Vestergaard, and Vestergaard's going, okay, I'm going to assess my options, because not only is he a really good ball-playing centre-back, but he's also two-footed, so he can hit passing angles that a lot of players aren't going to expect from a guy who's six foot six. Um, so the ball isn't being hoofed as long as it used to be. Um, Southampton still play quite a few long passes, but these long passes tend to be quite accurate, rather than the long passes that are slightly more speculative at other football clubs. And then when you look at Shea Adams, and Shea Adams is sort of, I don't want to say revival, but as he's adjusting to Premier League football, Shane Long's just sort of, I don't want to say fallen out of favour, but he's fallen in between the gaps. I'd say a pro- Shane Long was important for Southampton last season because Southampton were a team that could have finished anywhere between 17th and 13th, realistically. And they, and they you know, sort of snuck in a bit higher. But now Southampton's aims are, you know, I think their basement now, if Southampton finish at anything lower than 12th, Southampton fans have reason to be disappointed. And if Southampton, and Southampton should probably have reasonable expectations of trying to get into the Europa League. And I don't think Shane Long is a Europa League level striker anymore. I think he is hardworking and he is good in the air, but in a team that is getting better at playing on the ground and in a team that need, you know, their best form of defense is attack and scoring goals. Shane Long, who is, not the most prolific striker and has never been the most prolific striker is he's falling wide away side he will still be very important for the dressing room and he will still be a very very good professional and he will still be i think quite an interesting role model for all the younger players coming through you know when you're considering Southampton a big team and all those young strikers that need to learn the, the subtle nuances of how to prepare for an away game shane long will be important for that but in the hierarchy if you're Nathan Teller or Dan Ndulu, you should be going right now, maybe I can get in front of Shane Long. 
Or yeah, I did. I did great. I mean, he, fit, he just feels like a kind of he feels like the answer to yesterday's question, doesn't Ooh. he? And I, that's that's a horrible thing to say. And I love Shane Long, and I've waxed lyrical about. I think he's brilliant. I think, you know, but I think Saints. Carl's right. Saints have moved on, and I think, you know, as a ball as a ball playing team, we've moved on. And I I think what's fascinating is that. You know, we don't have any strength in death, but also, my God, what must Michael Obafemi have done to annoy Ralph so much like, <laughs> that, he, that he can't get anywhere near this team? You know, you'd think Michael Obafemi is meant to be the future, um, but clearly he's just lost all faith in him. Yeah, I, th- I think Ralph played him or, or he was played in a B-team game and then he got sent off. That probably didn't help, but I, I think it was around those times where Ralph said... Yeah, he gave his comments about Obafemi saying he keeps on making it too easy for other people to get in front of him in terms of the pecking order, and I imagine it must must be down to that. Um, I, I'm not sort of done with picking over the bones of, of what's gone wrong here. Because Shane Long has 55 substitute appearances as a substitute since March 2017. Would you like to guess how many goals he's scored? From the substitute appearances... In 55 substitute appearances since March 2017. Tom, I'll let you guess because I've seen this stat already. I would say three. You are incorrect. You are too high. The answer is one. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, look, I, I see that he brings so much more than goals. I mean, because obviously he, he cleared us because as you point out, he's never been a prolific Premier League goal scorer, but everyone loves him and the players seem to love him. Um, but, I, you know, you wonder if, and I think it shows the golf, doesn't it? The absolute, it's not golf, it's a chasm between the two teams where, you know, Cavani comes on and we've got Shane Long coming on. And I think, but also, I, I think, you know, maybe Saints need to help themselves a little bit more. And Ralph's obsession with substitutions sort of no earlier than sort of 70 odd minutes maybe isn't helping Saints in a, in a game that was clearly getting away from us. I don't know if Shane Long was the right answer at that point mm. and then also perhaps bringing on Diallo in the 90th minute is not early enough for him to affect the inevitable tide that that was coming so if I mean if we go over this because you know eight points lost from winning positions this season's not great 25 points since the start of last season's pretty dreadful and 37 points since the start of Ralph is is, is a horrible stat isn't it I mean if you tally up even a half of those points Saints are performing at a completely different level and it's a level that is tantalizingly within reach if we can do something about making ourselves more resilient with a league with a lead and uh, I'm trying to work out what it is I mean yes we've got the resources question you know the the difference is that some teams are able to bring on you know Cavani or you know Firmino or you know, whoever Manchester City have on the bench that day, and we don't. But, I mean, there's there's other things as well. I, I noticed Chadons was blowing a bit. Bednarek looked like he was, you know, suffering out there as well. I wonder if tiredness is coming into it, which I don't think should be an excuse after we've gone out of the League Cup so early and we're not playing European football. The other thing is that, which I wonder about Saints sometimes, is almost our emotional resilience to deal with this. And, uh, you know, Carl, you've obviously got the very sensible answer of it just being an early yellow card for one of James Ward-Prowse or Romeo, which is probably the correct answer. But am I on to anything with, with the other questions I'm looking at here? No, no, I think I think there's... 
more than one answer can be true. Um, so I will say squad depth. This is a Southampton squad that probably could do with backup at left back and in central midfield. Um, is Will Smallbone okay? I mean, we haven't seen him this season, I don't think. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm genuinely asking, is, is he injured? Is he all right? Well, he's, he's, he's playing, he's playing for the B tonight, team tonight. So. Yeah, yeah. I thought so he's playing the B for the B team, team tonight. The B team lineup today, so this we're, we're recording this on Monday just after Fulham have beaten Leicester. What a season. Um, that B team lineup looks very much like all of Southampton's second string. And it very much looks as if and the fact that the under-23s have been rebranded the B team and have been moved, and their games have been moved to days where Southampton's first team aren't playing looks to me as if Arsenal has gone, I need to look at this. I need to look at these youngsters. I need to get a clear idea of what these youngsters are. I need to make sure the pathway between the academy to the first team is clearer because I need to sort this squad depth issue because I'm not going to be able to sort this squad depth issue out without with money. He's not going to be able to sort money out. So, you know, a really good example of this is Elanusi. Elanusi is gone out on loan again to Celtic, where I'd imagine everyone involved would much rather Celtic pay some money to, to take Elanusi or Fraser Forster, for example, still on comparatively high wage for Southampton, is not the star. Um, you need to sort that situation out. Or the fact that Southampton terminated the contract of Buffal, where Buffal had roughly 8.5 million on you know, 8.5 million transfer fee, probably had some wages, but someone went, nope, we're just going to take a loss here. So the squad needs a little bit of bulking up. I'd say they are tired. And even though you're playing only one game a week, this is not only a physical fatigue, but it's a mental fatigue. So there's, there's you know, pressing isn't just running. There's more than one way of pressing. And the way that Ralph wants to press is incredibly mentally taxing, right? So the idea of every single time the left centre-back has the ball, you need to stand in between the left centre-back and the left-back every single time. And if you don't, they're going to be able to pass through. Or, or the idea of when that person runs there, you as a central midfielder needs to run in that certain situation and do that. There was a really good bit. Southampton got some of the ascendancy in the first bit of the second half because the original pressing trap that they set for Nemanja Matic used to be you double up on Matic because Matic is slow. And then partway through the game, you heard Ralph yell at Romero. like, Ori, 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 start dropping off. So what would happen was Ward-Prowse would run up to press Matic and Romero would just sag forward, would sag, would drop deeper and then sort of drift perpendicular. So the idea was Ward-Prowse would apply the first pressure and the moment Matic would make the pass, Romero would pop up and intercept the ball. And that was a really good gap in between, I'd say, the 15th minute and the 35th minute, where Southampton really did dominance because they just couldn't, they just sort of flummoxed Matic for a bit. That's really hard to do, and it's really tired to do because eventually Matic will go, oh, this is what they're doing. I need to stop making the obvious pass and hold on a little longer and try and get around Romeo. Uh, and I think when you're doing that in the 70th minute rather than the 25th minute, you just get a bit more tired. And yeah, there are things like the yellow card, and I think... This, you know, the depth is really interesting. I have not seen enough of Diallo, um, Dallo, even, I should say. And I think maybe pushing him as a substitute in the 65th minute rather than the 90th minute might work. I did write an article at the start of last season about Arsenal substitutes and how at the start of the season, at least, he was very much fresh logs on at 60 minutes and he slowly started making later substitutes throughout, towards the end of the season. And I pointed out to him in a press conference and he goes, why are you watching my substitute time so much? Because 
we're buddies. <laughs> I think, John, you're right there about mental fatigue. I mean, like, it must be strange for Saints because in, in, much way, in many ways, like the old Man United team, you know, the great Man United teams knew that being one or two goals down was no impediment whatsoever to them winning a game. Um, Saints must look at a 2-0 lead or they're... No, let me get this right. An opposition team that goes 2-0 down to a Saints team must not look at it and go, game's over. They must think, we still definitely get something out of this game. And that must... Yeah, that, that must impact them over time. Mm, mm. Uh, I, I reckon... Even if you don't want it to be a psychological effect, I think it's a thing now where teams are going, don't lose your heads when you go 2-0 down against Southampton. Or don't, it's not over until it's over against Southampton, which is quite hard. But again, let's really think about where Southampton were this time last year. So this time last year, on the 30th of November, 2019, Southampton were playing Watford in a home game that they looked dead and buried at halftime. They were 1-0 down against Watford. And then James Ward-Prowse curled in a free kick, and it was their first home game of the first home win in the season. So uh, this just shows one what a good job Ralph has done. You've gone from you know weaseling and squirreling your way to your first home win of the season against Watford when you looked as if you were relegation certainties, to now being annoyed that you lost to Manchester United when Manchester <laughs> United their exorbitant Copper Liber- you know Copper America winning. Uh, Centre forward. It, it, it is true. I think sometimes we do need to reflect on how far we've come. And, and also, after giving away eight points from winning positions this season, we're still in fifth. You know. Yeah. That's that's a that's a good that's a good place to be in. I, I think you know at the start yeah. of the season, if you've offered anyone fifth um, at Saints, you'd absolutely bite the hand off for it, and that would be our our best finish. I think, you know, post-92, Carl, if we're going to take that as oh. the start of uh, modern football. You are still in fifth place. Your lead striker is currently injured. Your m- more expensive summer signing is currently in the wind, current, like furiously downloading Hassan the system. <laughs> Your other su- summer signing is yet to be, pro- you know, is still downloading the system and is going to be properly integrated right now. You've got someone like Will Smallbone who's still to be integrated. Nathan Redmond is still injured as well. This is this is the really interesting thing about Southampton. Southampton are, I'd say, quantifiably now a good team. They are, I'd, I'd put them well in the Premier League middle class. They're not quite shopping at Waitrose, but they are, I wouldn't say they're, you know, they don't have to shop at Aldi unless they want to shop at Aldi, shall we say. Unless they're looking for a bargain in that middle aisle. I mean, I think yeah, we still do yeah. shop in Aldi, though, don't we? We're always looking for the European bargain. I think that's maybe... I think, you know, you're buying the meatballs in Ikea. Have, have I... Have I? Am I using... Am I making sense here? No. <laughs> um, I think... I think this is this is the great thing about Ralph. is the fact that he's had one full season and he's got 20... He's approaching his two-year benchmark and Southampton have gone from a team that goes into the seasons going oh god I hope we're not in a relegation battle now to go yeah we're going in the Europa League we want the Europa League yeah I mean I, there was a yeah. there was a there was a, kind of, a set of tweets that were doing the round on Twitter which um, you know were not safe for sort of public consumption and therefore I didn't retweet it but it described a, a night out in Berlin with Ralph Hasenhüttel which I think, you know, that's what, we need the away game at Hertha Berlin, don't we? I mean, it's going to be a wild night with Ralph. If, if Those in the know know 
And I think we'll leave it. Ralph at Bergheim. <laughs> but I think, you know, to, to, I think, you know, Carl's absolutely right. And I think as well, there's lots of, there's always a temptation to rush to, oh my God, it's going to be terrible. You know, Vestergaard looks awful. Armstrong, which I actually do believe is, is you know, still not quite, quite hit top form. But also, you know, look at our next three games. We've got three eminently winnable games coming up now. Um, and as someone who sat through Arsenal's inverted comma performance last night against Wolves, yeah, that Saints will have no fear against the Emirates. And I think that's the other thing. We, you know, we shouldn't get too despondent. It's one game against a team. Yes, they're not as good as they used to be, but they're still a very, very, very good team. Um, and and the next three games, you know, Saints could pick up seven points from those games, and all of a sudden, it's just it's totally back on. So, the idea that Southampton now have eminently winnable games. Isn't that great? Yeah, yeah, I mean, whereas before we were looking at Watford at home just going, this isn't eminently winnable, but it's must win because we're yeah. in so much trouble. It's great. It is great. So, I mean, we, we start off with Brighton next Monday. So a week today. Then we've got Sheffield United at home and then Arsenal at the Emirates. Can I just point out as well, Tom, do you remember who I predicted as my surprise for the relegation zone at the start of the season? I don't, John. It was Sheffield but United, and you <gasps> scoffed at me. Everyone scoffed at me with that prediction. It, the writing was on the wall already. Just, I just saw it. But Brighton are decent, aren't they? I mean, they're, yes. they're, they're going to give Saints a really good game. Sheffield United I'm a bit more confident about because I think they're on a terrible downward spiral. But, you know, Saints do love to stop a run, don't we? Um, <laughs> and, and actually, probably the game which I'm least worried about is Arsenal. And I think that will be a really interesting marker because... Um, Last season, it, that really felt like the game at the Emirates felt like the turning point. And, you know, we were in a horrible, horrible position when we played Arsenal at the Emirates. And hopefully, you know, come the 16th of December, we're going to be in a really, really good position, having picked up a few points from, from Brighton and um, Sheffield United games. I, I mean, Carl, you, you've seen Saints now in depth this weekend. You've watched a few games. Um, you think that Europa League or, or you know that sort of sniffing around is realistic is there anything else that you think Ralph could do to take Saints to a level beyond that I mean I, I think it's a strange season and I think we might see maybe some of the traditional big clubs falling by the wayside what what would Southampton have to do to exploit the weirdness of 2020 and 21 which that we could do without disrupting Ralph's sort of tactics that have clearly worked as a decent foundation you need to wrap Danny Ings up in cotton wool, I reckon. <laughs> I think a fit and firing Danny Ings helps Southampton, and, and there's a difference between Southampton being a top 10 entity and possibly a Europa League entity. You need goal scorers. Uh, and Southampton, Southampton were 2 0 up against Manchester United because they were clinical in their two chances. They will have a higher position when they have a clinical striker. And at least for six months, Danny Ings was one of the most clinical strikers in Europe. So I think that's the basic stuff. I think Hassan Hortel has been quite open in, one, he believes the, as he calls it, the EuroLeague. He calls it EuroLeague rather than Europa. I think it's quite fun. Um, he thinks EuroLeague is is definitely a target for Southampton, but rather one across seasons. So it'll be a gradual development as he eventually gets the squad to be closer to what he wants rather than one that can happen overnight. Uh, but I think I think there's just there is a lot of good things in this squad, and there's a lot of things in this squad that are obviously improvable, 
and improvable, and you know, you can fix that. I, I don't even want to say fix anyone because I don't think anything's broken Southampton. I, I want I want to say there are things that some you can make better, and such as Ralph's qualities as a coach. I'm not afraid that Ralph's the right man to do it. So I think something that all Southampton fans should look for this season are Theo Walcott's quotes, right? So Walcott has been coached by Arsene Wenger, uh, Carl Ancelotti, uh, David, uh, not David Silva, a different, a different Silva. He's been coached by Ronald Koeman. He's been coached by some of, you know, one managerial great and a number of managers that have been in charge of some of the better teams in Europe. You know, he's, he's been managed by someone who's now currently managing Barcelona. And I really want to see what Theo Walcott says about what it's like being coached by Ralph. Because I imagine Walcott has been a you know, Walcott has been a player who very often has been playing off instinct and has very much been coached on his strengths. Whereas Ralph is someone who's gone, you're not good at this thing. I need to be good at this thing. And if you're not going to improve it, I'm not going to play you. Um, so I want to see if Walcott, you know, if Walcott has a moment quite similar to Steven Gerrard said on the Brendan Rodgers. So Gerrard once said he wished he had met Rodgers five years earlier in his career. And I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if Walker ended up saying something similar about Ralph. And it wouldn't surprise me if Walker decided he wanted to stay because he enjoyed the coaching so much. Um, and I think it's that sort of thing. If you can go from, if you can go from a team that has to play Shane Long up front because you need to hoof it to a team that wants to play it on the deck with your six foot six centre back and Shea Adams scoring ten goals a season, in, and you can do that over the course of one summer, a truncated summer where where you'd normally get 60 days to work with the players, and yet you only had 60 days in between the summers. If you can do that sort of improvement again and again and again, which looks possible, I'm not going to say likely, but possible because of the way he's worked this playbook, then I think the only limit now is burnout from players and burnout from Ralph. Uh, it looks as if he's been given enough power to stop both. Yeah, I mean, the, the Ralph thing really terrifies me. I mean... When you, in his head, maybe he looks at that game and thinks, you know, it's Shane Long versus Cavani, and perhaps he's reaching the sort of well, he's he's getting the sort of kudos in the media, which means that he is now being mentioned in the same breath as some of the the bigger clubs. And my fear is that at some point Ralph will go, I'd rather have a Cavani on the bench than a Shane Long on the bench as my sort of early thirties striker striking substitute option. I would disagree. So I think what was really interesting was in one of the fan summits before the start of the season, Ralph used this term. He uses this term quite often. He calls them fantasy players. He goes, I don't like working with fantasy players or considering fantasy players, which I think is his word for anyone who's really expensive. And when you look at Ralph's systems that require loads of running, loads of team cooperation and, and basically sacrifice of your ego for the collective greater good. I don't think he wants someone like Cavani. I don't think he really wants someone that has maybe won a World Cup or has maybe won a Champions League. Because when Ralph goes, all right, I don't care what about that. I need to run. And they go, I don't want to. What happens then? I think Ralph, Ralph works the way Ralph works because he likes those younger players because they're going to buy into his systems. One thing I, I always said last season was when Ralph likes a player, he calls them open-minded which basically means he does what he's told. I think it's, a, it's an interesting point about the open-mindedness and the fancy players because I think many Saints fans were perhaps a little bit worried that Theo Walcott might be a fantasy player, you know, this this kind of riffing on a good feeling and history and sentiment. And actually, he seems to be open-minded and working hard. And he, we, we've seen like Salisu and Dale, as you're now telling me that I need to pronounce uh, Dale's name, um, 
And, you know, those guys haven't fit into the... Well, Salisa hasn't had a chance yet, and Darlow doesn't look like he's got the Ralph system yet, whereas Theo Walcott seems to be kind of willing and, and quick to learn, and sometimes his press timing is maybe a little bit different to that of Danny Ings and Che Adams, but buddy, he, he's fit in really well, and that definitely surprised me. Yeah, yeah, I did not see Theo Walcott becoming a serious footballer so quickly. <laughs> I like that. Uh, from our serious football journalist, Carl Anker. Um, Carl, I, I, I've asked all the questions that I have um, from my listeners, apart from one, which comes from William, which is, I think, a wrestling-based question, which I, ask, I, I, I know nothing about. So you need to give a one-word answer for this one um, because I don't want to alienate all of our... Um, uh, all, all of our listeners in, in one tweet. But um, William asks, uh, which Saints player would cut it in a Royal Rumble? Oh, that's a really good one. Uh, Fraser Forster. Fraser for sure. Forster, okay. Tom, do you have anything more for Carl whilst we've got him before we have to say goodbye and you know look forward to whenever it is that we get to play Man United again in the future? Uh, I guess, Carl, just, uh, what's your prediction for... I mean, I know this is a mad season. But, you know you you know this team as well as anyone. Um, you obviously watch a team who are you know ostensibly better. Um What's your prediction for Saints? How far do you think they'll go this season? I'm gonna. I, I so at the start of the season, I did my. You know, be, be all piled in at the Athletic, and we all did our, our predict the league table. And I, like many a foolish man, predicted Man City would win the title. Uh, but I, I predicted Southampton finish ninth. So I think Southampton can, and they have a they have a ceiling of the Europa League, so seventh place. But I don't think they're going to get there just yet. I think. The squad is just a little bit too small. Um, I think the situation at left back is really interesting for me. If Ryan Bertrand gets hurt, something could unravel quite quickly. But in the meantime, ninth place, Trey Adams scoring 10 goals this season in the Premier League. Dan Ings probably scoring 20 goals again. And then did the further development of players like Nathan Teller. Good season. I don't know if you're going to be good in the Cups. So once again, you got knocked out in the League Cup. And I think your FA Cup run will probably end quickly. Cause what, Ralph... like against Shrewsbury Town at home? I mean, come on. <laughs> Surely we can get through that Come on, one. Come on the Shrews. Ralph, <laughs> Ralph Passenal has never got past the quarterfinal, which doesn't sound like a big deal when you consider some of the teams he's been in charge of. But I think that high-pressing game turns uh, things into a little bit too chaotic. So if you remember last season... Southampton didn't draw too many games. So I think high pressing basically turns games into a coin toss because you're just, it's either we're going to win or you're going to win because you're just pressing constantly and it turns it into a two and throw. And when you're doing that constantly, you don't really have a, a way to settle down or, or, or to put a cooler on it when you're drawing a game. Uh, and I think that sort of mentality in cup games means you can be a bit naive. So I think ninth place out the cups by the fifth or sixth round uh, and uh, everything to go on quite nicely. And I suppose, seeing as you've not tipped Saints to win the league as the potential dark horse winner, I've got to ask my father-in-law's question. Do you see there being a potential dark horse winner of the league this season? No, it's still Liverpool. I'm sorry. I'm a little bit sad about this, but I think it's Liverpool as well. Tom? I I fancy Spurs. <gasps> dum, dum, yeah. Dum. I think Mourinho, this is, this is what he's all about, isn't it? Being an outsider, you know, being a bit of a, a smarmy git. Kane and Son are unstoppable I think Spurs are going to do it I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to see Spurs win it I think it'd be brilliant Really? What? Well 
Yeah, I've got a lot of time. To do. And Harry, Harry Kane needs to win something, man. The, the guy's an incredible athlete. He, needs yeah, to, he deserves to win Sterling, something. He would have won something. He, he's allowed to win the Euros this summer. That's what I'm saying. That's what Harry <laughs> Good. Right, Good stuff. gents, we've uh, gone on a little bit longer than we normally do, but it's um, I've been really enjoying this conversation, so I'm going to make no apologies to the listeners. Hopefully um, you, you may still be sat in your car in the, the work car park waiting for this to finish before you head into the office or added an extra kilometre onto your run that you, that you use for listening to. Um, Carl, it's been an absolute pleasure having you back and um, I hope we can catch up again later on in the season um, when Saints play Man United in the league and who knows, perhaps when Saints and Man United meet in the FA Cup final or the quarterfinal, as that'll be where we'll go crashing out. Um, Tom, as always, lovely to see you and uh, I think we've, all we've got to do now is listen to those uh, fans that sing us out now. So goodbye everyone. <laughs>